You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. We're going to get to a couple of topics later on in our show. We're going to talk about what's going on with the Rockies, what the Mets might do, and a really interesting piece on fan graphs about improvements that baseball can make. But first, there's some really momentous and important news in baseball this week. There are There is finally going to be the addition of Negro League stats to the Major League Encyclopedia 7. Various Negro Leagues that played between 1920 and 1948 are going to retroactively be given Major League status. It's really important. It's going to change not only the way we view some of those players, but really it's going to change some of the stats in a, a very important way. And so we're super excited to join, be joined in a few minutes by Larry Lester, uh, who is really one of the most important people in terms of Negro League history. He's collected a lot of these stats by himself. He's helped push for this recognition to happen, uh, and he's kind enough to give us a few minutes. So, Matt, you know, we, in the context of the show, we've already talked to him. He was great. Actually broke a little bit of news. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, wh- how did you react to the news yesterday? But for me, I was like, long overdue, right? It's, it's I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's really exciting and cool to see you know the leagues were segregated it was a horrible oversight that basically not just at the time that the league were segregated that there was a time in the late 60s where this committee met to decide which former leagues were going to be included in the baseball encyclopedia and basically all these old leagues the federal league and others from the, the early part of the 20th century were included in the in the in the official record the negro leagues were not which is just sort of speaks to um the the racism and segregation of the time so i think that this is you know this doesn't make everything this doesn't make that right um doesn't make the segregation right it's but it's we can now i think it's it's really cool to see the stats put in the same context because we can now compare players more easily and that's part of what the fun is of baseball history is we compare players by their stats and i think it's you know it's very easy to see that like when you look at the numbers that the level of play of the Negro leagues was at or better than the the level of play in the American league and National League at the time, because you saw players who went right from one to the other in, you know, 1948, 1949, 50, around that time, who ended up putting up as good or better stats when they went from the Negro leagues to the American and National League. Yeah. I was reading in uh, Ben articles story in the ringer that there was a study that said between 1900 and 1948, black teams went 315, 315 wins, 282 losses, and 20 ties against major league teams. And you're right, this does not, you know, this doesn't snap your fingers and wipe away all the mistakes that were made in the past, but I think the recognition is important. I'm just thinking about the way it's laid out currently on baseball reference, and this is not a dig at them. It's my favorite all-time baseball site. The Negro League stats are presented currently in a separate tab called Negro and Minor League Stats. And I think that's going to change. You are going to see those presented in the same flow as all of the American League stats and National League stats for some of the other major leagues you don't think about, like the Federal League and some of the 19th century leagues. Go look at those player pages. They are all presented on equal status and equal standing. And that's what the Negro Leagues will be as well soon, which, as we said, long overdue. So we are going to take a quick break here. When we are back, we're going to talk to Larry Lester, one of the most prominent Negro League historians. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. 
Usually we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com MLB. GetRoman.com MLB. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. As Matt and I just mentioned, it's a big day in baseball history over the last couple of days uh, with the Negro Leagues finally being given equal status as one of the new seven major leagues. And we're really, really pleased to be joined by someone who is an expert on this. We have with us Larry Lester, who is the co-founder of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, chairman of the Sabre Negro Leagues Committee, and probably one of the most prominent Negro League historians alive. Uh, Larry, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. And I was wondering if you could just explain what the last day or two has been like for you. Um, Was this expected for you? Has it been kind of a whirlwind? Are we like the 24th show to call you and ask you to talk to us about this? Well, first of all, thank you, uh, Mike, Matt, and Dan for having me on MLB.com. Uh, yesterday morning was a, a watershed moment. Uh, I was surprised at the news. Uh, <clears throat> it was unexpected. Uh, I was hopeful, but it's been, you know, 50 plus years uh, of journey of trying to capture all these box scores that have never been printed, and published. So uh, it was a surprise. Uh, uh, a lot of tears of joy and some tears of uh, pain in that some of my colleagues like Dick Clark and Wayne Stivers were not around to share this momentous occasion. And many ball players like Minnie Minoso and even Charlie Pride, who pitched three years in the Negro Leagues, the late Charlie Pride and Buck O'Neill. And I mean, so many great ball players are not around to uh, share in what is now major league status. So uh, it was a bittersweet moment. Uh, <clears throat> something that, uh, it, 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 you know, it, it moved me quite a bit. Uh, I felt like Sisyphus trying to push that ball up to the top of the mountain and I'm finally on that mountaintop. So uh, I'm taking it from here. Now, is this is this something that you you've sort of been part of a group lobbying Major League Baseball to do for a while? And and when did you first get involved in in the research aspect of of um, Negro League stats? Well, yes, I have. I've always reached out to Major League Baseball, the powers to be. I call them the gatekeepers, and 
send them a lot of letters and emails and say, hey, here I am. Why can't we fly flags of championship Negro League teams like the Kansas City Monarchs, Pittsburgh Crawfords, Chicago American Giants, uh, Homestead Grays, uh, you know, why not honor these ball players in, in so many avenues? And, and so it's just, I thought they ignored me, but I guess uh, <laughs> they were paying attention. So it's a, a letter writing campaign. Uh, I like being an agitator, shaking up the, uh, the waves just a little bit. I mean, I've learned so much from these ball players. Uh, they made me a better father, husband, a better man. And this one ball player once told me when I was thinking about quitting the project, he said, uh, can't fight unless you're in the ring. And so uh, I'm still fighting, throwing some jabs and punches whenever I can. And I will continue to advocate uh, the inclusion of Negro League players into the baseball encyclopedia and into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah, I think it's important to remember um, for everyone listening that even though the Negro Leagues are now going to be considered one of the major leagues, they were really always major leaguers. You know, it's, as the statement said, regrettable this didn't happen decades ago, but they didn't necessarily need this statement to go back and look at Turkey Stearns and Cool Papa Bell and all everybody else that certainly you know better than I do uh, as, as all-time greats. I think the recognition helps, but it, it certainly doesn't change, you know, how great they already were, and I, I imagine that's, that's something you'd agree with. Oh, definitely. Uh... Turkey Stearns is one of the most underrated ball players ever. Uh, he could bat clean up and lead off. And you got Bullet Rogan, who could pitch every fourth day and bat clean up when he wasn't pitching. I mean, a lot of ph phenomenal stories will come to uh, fruition and to the mindset of uh, baseball fans across the country. And I, I think for the most part, uh, they will enjoy learning about this dark chapter in baseball history and some of these great ball players that you just mentioned, so many of them, uh, we don't have time to mention uh, so many superstars that just, uh, just awesome talent and ability. Just, it's, it's fantastic just to, just to read and hear about them and talk to them. I was wondering, um, you know, this is bringing a lot of positive attention to the Negro Leagues. And I, I think a lot of people are learning about some of these stories. You know, everybody knows the name Satchel Page and Willie Mays, but you know, some of the, the names that aren't quite as famous. And in reading some of the stories about all this, it seems that uh, about 75% or so of the stats have been found. And, you know, obviously you yourself have done a great deal of the research and pouring through newspapers. And if there's anything that the baseball community loves to do, it's to research and hunt down stuff. And I'm wondering, you know, is there a way where people, you know, now that they're thinking about this can help? Like, is there a list of games you don't have? Like hypothetically, you're missing a whole month of the 1948 Birmingham season and, and someone's grandfather has newspapers in the attic. You know what I mean? Is there a, a way people can assist with this kind of research now? Well, we have it under control. Uh, many of my colleagues have access to libraries in various uh, cities. We have a schedule for every game from 1920 to 1948. And like you said, we have found 75% of those games. Well, we've found more than that, but we only have about 75% of the games in the database right now. Some of the missing games were played in small towns that 
we don't have access to their to those newspapers. And so that requires a personal visit to that library and, and to look at that microfilm. Uh, that's time consuming. And we may not find that game, depending on the quality of uh, the newspaper, especially in, in the early 30s with the Great Depression, some of the newspapers did not have complete coverage uh, because of economic hardships during that period. But we have found probably 99% of the games in the 1920s and the 30s, there's hit and miss in the 1940s and late 1930s, we have found probably 90% of the games that were scheduled. So we're, we're in good shape. Uh, it takes a while to crunch the numbers. I mean, every line of that box score has to be manually inputted into a spreadsheet, which is uploaded to a database that I created. And that database uh, information goes to Gary Ashwell with Seamheads, so that is so that that data is available to everybody on the internet. So we're, we're, we'll get there and uh, it will change some of the records, <laughs> uh, good, bad, and indifferent. And uh, some people will be upset to find out that Josh Gibson never hit 800 home <laughs> runs. <laughs> yeah, that one, that one came up a lot. I, I don't imagine you're gonna have uh, extensive box scores of every barnstorming event for 25 years. <laughs> Well, we do not include barnstorming games. We do not include non-league games. Uh, we want to compare apples to apples and orange, oranges to oranges. And uh, those games he hit against the local YMC club, we're not including those. <laughs> so there's going to be a lot of people mad at me, but that's okay. Well, you know, on, on that note, you know, Mike actually wrote a piece um, for MLB.com today that kind of looks at some of the ways this might affect um, leaderboards, you know, a prominent example is, you know, Josh Gibson hit 441, according to Seam Heads in 1943, which, you know, assuming that holds up as, you know, the official record, we will now be saying Josh Gibson has the most recent 400 season, not Ted Williams. What are some possible changes along those lines that kind of stand out to you that you're kind of looking out for? Well, I think we need to add a qualifier to all of those statements. Uh, Ted Williams still hit the, he's the last 400 hitter, except in the American League. And Josh Gibson or Artie Wilson or Sam Harrison, depends on what year we're talking about, was the last 400 hitter in the Negro Leagues. So I don't think we should take away from uh, the great achievement by uh, Ted Williams or Joe DiMaggio's 56 consecutive hit streak and but we need to add a qualifier when we write our articles and make our statements as to why his place is in history. We're not trying to change history, but when I, when I see written texts about Bob Feller hit, pitched the only opening day no hitter in baseball history, that's not completely true. He pitched the opening day no hitter in major league history because Leon Day was right behind me in the jacket, pitched an opening day no hitter in 1946 for the Newark Eagles, winning two to nothing. So we just need to make qualified statements instead of trying to change his history. And I think that's the beauty of what is going to happen and, and come forth out of what uh, what was announced yesterday. Yeah, I, I think that really kind of hits on how complicated this is because Matt just mentioned 
Josh Gibson's batting average in 43. And he said 441. And, and the way I wrote it was 466. And the reason for that is because the, the 441 includes uh, the World Series that year, the East-West All-Star Game, the North-South All-Star Game. I, I don't know the correct answer. My feeling is regular season only, but I guess these are some of the questions that are going to have to be sorted out. Well, we, we have all that separated. We should look at season only. We do, do not add in postseason stats. Uh, every line of the database is coded. If I want to print out all-star stats or postseason stats or seasonal stats, it can be done. Uh, we can print any report that's currently available in the baseball encyclopedia. Uh, last week, I just got a bug and I'm like, how many pitchers have more complete games than wins in their career? And I came across Juan Marshall from the, the Dominican Republic and the great lefty Warren, Warren Spahn. Because that really shows a, a pitcher that a manager has faith in. More complete games and wins. Wow, that's, that's an incredible. So I wrote a little code there and ran my report and I came up, wow, Willie Foster in the Negro Leagues, Bullet Rogan, uh, Ray Brown, they're all in the Hall of Fame which validates their greatness. Uh, but we can do anything with these stats that, that has been done in Major League Baseball. So that's the beauty of uh, having it in one database. Now, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not sure uh, you saw, like you've, you've had a busy day, but there was a, a piece that's been kind of getting some pickup on social media written by Clinton Yates in The Undefeated, in which he kind of, you know, he's, he's excited about, the, you know, the, the decision, but he says, and happy for the folks who worked for it, but he basically argues, he says, you know, he takes issue with the idea that somehow this legitimizes the Negro Leagues and that he doesn't think the Negro Leagues needed this to be legitimized. Similarly, I've kind of seen others say on Twitter that this could run the risk of maybe slowly erasing some of what made the Negro Leagues unique if suddenly the stats are all kind of lumped together. Um, what's your response to, to that? Hmm. I see this as a very positive movement for recognition. Uh, I think it benefits MLB. Uh, I, I think it's, it's in a form of social reparations. Uh, I don't see nothing but good that can come out of this. Uh, I know there's some haters and naysayers out there, but this is a chance to take up, take this opportunity uh, to address their omission from baseball Americana. And uh, despite what the writer had to say, I, I, I disagree with him by the, by the way. Uh, I thought the tone was a little over the top uh, addressing an old white man. I didn't care for that terminology, but uh, I think it's good. I think it's a good move. Uh, we will have critics on both sides. Uh, what has happened here, the answers to last week's trivia question is not the same answer this week. <laughs> and that's why people are upset. Now I have to go back and study 
to see who was the last 400 hitter. What no hitters were pitched in the Negro Leagues. I used to be the trivia champion, and now maybe I might get upset in the next year's competition. So. My, my favorite thing about this is uh, I saw a report that there is an unaccounted for Willie Mays home run where there's an article about it, but no box score yet. So it's like he'll have 660 for now and maybe for some time to come, but maybe at some point in the future, you will find that 661. I, I assume that's not something you have that's not in the database yet, right? Well, we do have that one home run. Uh, 1948 for Willie Mays, but he, uh, we're going to add that. He'd have 661. We have found that okay. box score, but we also have a home run that he hit in the third game of the World Series in 1948, but there was no box score. So Albert Pujols is safe for right now with 662. <laughs> <laughs> but don't count me out yet. I'm still searching. I can't wait. <laughs> that's that's really cool. Um, one more thing I want to ask you about before before we let you go. You know, Mike alluded uh-huh. before um, to the East-West All-Star game when um, he was talking about Josh Gibson. And, you know, recently I heard you speak on a Game Changers panel that the White Sox put together. And you spoke passionately about the East-West All-Star game. And you wrote a book about the East-West All-Star game. I knew nothing about it until I heard you speak about it on the panel. And I was hoping that maybe you could tell our audience a little bit about the East-West All-Star game and kind of what made it so special? Well, the East-West All-Star game was played annually in Comiskey Park in Chicago, and it was the biggest event in Black America, bar none, except maybe a radio broadcast Joe Lewis fight. (laughs) So you got fans coming on the railroads from all parts of the country to see the best Black talent on the field. I mean, you got all the entertainers, uh, Lena Horne, uh, Lionel Hampton, Joe Lewis would show up with his entourage, uh, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington. Uh, everybody who was anybody was there at the Grand Hotel in Chicago to see the biggest sporting event in Black America. And so is it an opinion or a fact? But when you look at, at the attendance in 1941 and in 1943, they drew over 50,000 people to the All-Star game. And roughly 30 to 40% of that crowd was white. Everybody wanted to see the best and rarest talent on the field. And the Black Leagues played a more up-tempo style of play with the hit and run, button run, double steals, suicide squeeze plays and an occasional steal of home plate as we saw with Jackie Robinson when he broke into the major leagues and stole home plate seven times in one season. This is a more up-tempo style of game and so fans packed into the stadium to see the black all-star game which was called the east-west game and statistically the attendance at the black all-star game exceeded that of the white all-star game. So maybe, just maybe the, the gatekeepers said, maybe there's an opportunity to make some money here if we uh, sign a couple of these black ball players, you know. But uh, that's why I had to write the book. It's, it's an incredible event, uh, a lot of stories and a lot of uh, editorials about why can't we integrate uh, Major League Baseball. Larry, I want to, first of all, thank you for your time. Uh, for giving us a little insight here and for all the hard work you've put in over the years and will continue to do 
uh, I'm sure. And, you know, congratulations on this momentous event. If, if people want to learn more about you and your work, um, I was looking at your website earlier, LarryLester42.com uh, has a link, links to um, your books and you've done a lot of non-baseball work as well. I can see there. So thank you again. Uh, and I look forward to seeing when we get that Willie Mays home run. <laughs> okay. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure, gentlemen. Huge thanks to Larry Lester. I know we had him on for like 15 minutes, but to be honest, I think I could listen to him inform me about Negro League Baseball for like nine straight hours because he was fascinating. And did you notice he broke a little bit of news there? When you think about like the all-time numbers in baseball where you don't even have to explain to people what they mean, right? Like 714, that's one of those numbers. 406, you know what that means. 660 was one of those numbers. And now it might actually be 661. We already knew that Willie Mays had a home run out there that was unaccounted for because it was written about in an article, but we didn't have a box score for it. Except now we do. 661 for Willie Mays. That is, it's like earth shattering to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's, it's pretty cool. And, and, and you know, for our show, which is mostly focused on baseball and like, and, you know, it's been about StatCast and sort of the future of baseball. I feel like our two biggest news breaking moments are that. And when you had Adam, Adam, Adam Adevito talk about how he could strike out Babe Ruth. So <laughs> <laughs> um, history has a place in this podcast. It's very cool. You know, when this, when this news first broke, my first thought was, is Hank Aaron going to be the home run king again? Because Hank Aaron did play in the Negro Leagues. And that was my first thought. But then I went and looked and I saw that um, as part of the announcement, the, it's the years 1920 through 1948. They're going to be added to the official record, the Negro Leagues from 1920 through 1948. Hank Aaron did not play in the Negro Leagues until after um, 1948. So his home run total is what? They had five home runs in the Negro Leagues, but not until the early 50s. Yeah, so his home run total will not change. So that 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 possible um, you know change is not going to happen. But Willie Mays adding a home run to his record, well, that is that's pretty cool. There is some more current baseball topics to get to, so we're going to take a quick quick break and come right back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you, based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined by MLB.com's Matt Myers. We are going to get to our three batter minimum, three interesting news topics. The first one, what on earth do you do with Nolan Arenado and or Trevor Story and the entire dilemma that is the Colorado Rockies. Um, Nolan Arenado has been vocal in his displeasure about the state of the Rockies and not really being competitive over the last year. 
his contract is super complicated because he's due another $199 million, but he also has a no trade clause, but he also has an opt out, but he also didn't have a great year because he hurt his shoulder. So even if they want to trade him, it's super complicated. And Trevor Story, who is, I don't know, I'm not going to say he's the best shortstop in baseball, but he's certainly in that conversation is entering his final year before free agency. This decides the state of the franchise for the next 10 years what they do in the next 12 months. Is that an overstatement? No, I think it's because, I mean, there's, there's, there's the world in which Story leaves a free agent and Arenado opts out and they get, you know, a couple draft picks. And that's kind of the worst, that's the, the, the worst case scenario, right? And I think that um, it's a really interesting challenge of the Rockies in particular, because, you know, while we know, we've seen a lot of teams, a lot of teams, you know, quote unquote, what you'd call small market teams have kind of succeeded by being pretty, cold-hearted in their analysis for lack of a better word like you know the rays are very part of what makes the Rays successful is that like if they think another player they will they will put sentimentally sentimentality to the side if they think it's going to improve their team the rockies have traditionally been a team that has tried to sort of have that you know connection like oh we want to keep our star players we want you know they re-signed charlie blackman to a long-term deal they re-signed nolan arenado obviously to a long-term deal so they are they've not had that sort of uh MO in terms of a franchise that's willing to kind of just like make a trade if they think it's a slight marginal improvement. So unlike some other teams, I feel like they'd be less inclined to trade high profile players that are so identified with their team, which I just think makes all this so much more complicated. I agree with all of that. And then the other issue is, you know, these two guys are superstars by anybody's measure. They've got huge name value and they play important positions but their trade value is really complicated. Now for Arenado, it's for all the reasons I just said, you know, you've got to take on a guy with a big contract who might opt out next year and have to get him to waive his no trade clause. So is that like a Giancarlo Stanton situation where you're really just taking on the contract and not giving a ton of talent. And then you've got story who is phenomenal, but he's entering the final year of his contract. And, you know, the Red Sox, when they traded bets last year, they did okay. Like I like Verdugo. I like the, the prospects, but it's not like a earth shattering return. And as much as I like Trevor story, he's, he's not Mookie bets. Right. So the other thing is you can't trade story and keep Arenado. That's the one thing you can't do. You think he's unhappy now trade away Trevor story and then see how he feels like they're in such a tough spot to say nothing of, Oh yeah. The Dodgers and the Padres. You know, John Paul Morosi wrote a piece on MLB.com addressing the Arenado situation and one thing he made, he sort of, he sort of, um, you know, alluded to the Mets as a possible fit, and we'll get to more on the Mets in a second. Um, and he, one of the things he sort of suggested was the idea that maybe as part of a trade negotiation, Arenado can at least push the opt out back a year as part of like the, the deal of say like, okay, because he has a no trade too. So in order to waive his no trade, they may be able to say, okay, if you're going to waive your, as part of waiving your trade, we also want you to push your opt out back a year, which I think could make trading Arenado a lot more um, sort of feasible if the team felt like, okay, I mean, he's making $35 million a year, which is a lot, especially for a guy coming off a down year where he had a shoulder injury and his power was down. Of course, again, it's a 60-game season, so it's really hard to like evaluate what Aaron, which, which version of Nolan Arenado you're going to be. We did a, for. I don't think it's published yet, but we did a roundtable on the site with myself, Andrew Simon, Sarah Langs, and Manny Rendawa. And Manny is, you know, from Colorado. And I don't want to say Rockies fan, but he certainly pays attention to that team closer than most. And at the end, Andrew, who is our moderator, said, okay, what do you all think is going to happen? Like, what is the outcome for Story and for Arenado? And we all pretty much independently at the same time had the same answer, which is that 
Arenado's getting traded this winter. They're going to try to sign Story long-term, but he's probably going to walk away next winter. And I guess that's great for this upcoming season if you've got Story, but if you if you lose them both, then why are you keeping Herman Marquez? Like, what, what do you even do? That's the thing. I read I read that um, the roundtable, which which will I think will probably be live by the time this podcast is live, so the timing is very good. And Andrew Simon, I thought made a very good comparison. He sort of compared it to the White Sox of a few years ago, where the White Sox had a couple of star players, but it was really it was like it wasn't even stars and scrubs. It was like stars and like nothing. Um, and that's sort of when they that offseason where they made those trades, where they traded away. Chris Sale and they traded away Adam Eaton. Um, I guess it was Adam Eaton, and that was that was kind. Of, and then they went and traded away Jose Quintana, yeah. right? And that was kind of the how they. Year, but, yeah. but that's how they rebuilt. That's kind of how they rebuilt there. Yeah. Um, it was early. In this, what I, I didn't buy it though. Like I like Andrew, but I, I don't think the comparison works because part of the reason was Chris Sale is like a top three starting pitcher on a ridiculous low contract. Adam Eaton's a good outfielder on a ridiculous low contract it's you're not going to get the same return for those guys um i guess i mean i I see your point but i still think that there's there's the opportunity to sort of just i mean like you said it yourself like when you did your audit of um your audit of all 30 teams going into the offseason based on who's on the roster right now the rockies rank 30th right and it's the situation is not going to get much better right now and it could get a lot worse if these guys leave for nothing so i think that right now especially if you can sort of figure out a way like there's a world, and maybe this is a good transition to talk about another piece you wrote this week about the Mets, um, is uh, there's a world in which you can engage the Mets on Arenado and say, okay, he's going to waive his no trade. He's going to push his his opt-out back a year or maybe two years, and now we can actually talk about getting some, some, uh, some, uh, some real talent. So let's move on to topic number two. The Mets have a GM finally. Now, hey. what, now what are they going to do? Yeah, the Mets have a GM. The Mets have hired Jared Porter, who I honestly didn't know that much about, but seems to be very highly regarded. Um, but it's not going to be the Jared Porter show because Sandy Alderson has already been there and he's been making a lot of the moves. And I went through a couple of things that they should do. I know everybody wants them to just go sign the top 30 free agents because like everyone's over the moon about Steve Cohen. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think, you know, Marcus Simeon's going to be your backup middle infielder because it's not a fantasy baseball team. But it does seem to me that there are, I think, three things that they absolutely have to have to have to do. Right. And the first thing is they have to sign one of the top free agents. Like the, I think Mets fans will lose their mind just because of how pumped up they've gotten. If they don't sign, you know, it can't be Romuto now because they got McCann. So it's got to be either Bauer or uh, Springer. You can argue for either one. I much prefer Springer for them. You, you could argue for LeMahieu. That's come up, but I agree with you. I think it's going to be Bauer or Springer. And to be fair, it shouldn't be. I mean, Mets fans would be would have rightfully kind of be upset because Danny Allerson has basically said. We're going to get one. It's all but said we're going to get one of those guys. You know, you know, like Mets fans are so pumped up. I realize what I'm about to say is a sample size of one person. I, I was in the car recently listening to local sports talk radio, which I don't do very often. One of the someone had called in and said, well, one of these guys isn't enough. And two of these guys isn't enough. The Mets need to sign three of them. They need to sign three of the big stars. And the sports talk radio hosts, who are not people given to restraint, are like, uh, wait, hold on a minute. I, I don't think that's realistic. So anyway, they have to do that. I think it'll be Springer. Um, the second thing I think that they they have to do, and I've actually seen reporting about this yesterday from uh, Anthony DeComo, is they have to extend Michael Conforto, right? I mean, you could go for Brandon Nimmo if you want, but Conforto is a year closer to free agency. Conforto is one of the 25 or so best hitters in baseball. You know, he's a homegrown guy. He's really very popular, I think, with Mets fans. 
Um, that's an easy thing to do that, you know, it'll cost you, but it's not going to cost you like a $200 million contract. Um, and then the third thing you have to do is to get some depth. And that's what Porter has really talked about. And that's where the Mets have fallen down over the last couple of years. When I was looking through this, I was reminded of how much playing time they gave just two years ago, not 10 years ago, two years ago to Jose Reyes, Adrian Gonzalez, and Jose Bautista. It's the ghosts of 2008 past, but in 2018. <laughs> uh, um, it, it, um the one um, speaking of Jared Porter, I'll, I'll one aside, and then I'll talk, talk to the uh, the uh, the uh, the actual go back to the Mets. Jared Porter. So I went to a small college in Maine called Bates College. One of our like rival school is this college called Bowdoin College. Jared Porter went to Bowdoin. He was a year below me, but he played baseball, and I had a bunch of friends on the baseball team. So I was like, I wonder if like Jared Porter ever played against some of my friends in baseball. I'm like, sure enough, like I don't know how this survived. I found this like press release from like Bates College 2001 or something of like Jared Jared Porter like shuts, shuts down Bates College. However, catcher like Ben Donaldson had an RBI single for 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 the Bates lone run. Ben Donaldson, one of my good friends, so it was pretty cool to be able to send it to him and say, you know, you you got an RBI single off the uh, the new Mets <laughs> the new Mets GM 20 years ago. Yeah. As, as I joked on Twitter, I, when I was looking up Jared Porter's biography, I realized he graduated in 2003 with a history degree from a New England college, which all of that applies to me. And not that I'm in any way unhappy with my current life or career, but it's like, man, what could have been? Maybe I could be running the Mets right now. Um, but in his introductory press conference, I, I, you know, trying to read the tea leaves a little bit, he said, he talked about being strong up the middle and pitching depth and sort of hinted that like he felt like sort of someone asked him about, he felt like he needed another top rotation starter. And he was like, well... We have, you know, DeGrom, maybe the best pitcher in the game. Syndergaard's had a schedule. We feel good about Stroman. Reading the tea leaves, he seemed to be saying, to me at least, Sp Springer would be the, the priority. Second on that, you know, when you talk about depth, even if the Mets want to go over the luxury tax, you know, they're not going to blow past it, right? And so let's say that's why they're not going to sign two of these guys because then you're, you're, you, could, you would blow past it this year if you want to add any more depth beyond that. So I think it's much more likely to sort of what you said is, go after Springer, maybe extend Conforto, which also would raise your, your luxury tax figure because it takes the average annual value of the contract. When, when you count against the luxury tax, it's not the, the salary in that year, it's the average annual value of the contract. Almost certainly whatever extension Conforto signs, the average annual value will be higher than what he was already set to be making in 2021. So I think it's more likely then you maybe see them go after a Jayco to Rizzi type, or maybe, and I'd be interested is if they went and signed another reliever and said, you know what? We actually think Seth Lugo can start. We're going to put Seth Lugo in the rotation, but um, it'll be interesting to see what they do. Yeah. There, there are relievers. If you haven't noticed, there are some relievers available. There was also some reporting that was connecting the Mets to possibly going after Nolan Arenado. And I almost wonder if the source of that reporting was more from the Colorado side than from the New York side. Cause if you're the Rockies, you want the Mets to be involved in pretty much anything because the Mets are, you know, well-funded now and motivated. I'm not sure I see it. You know, I, I think Tacomo actually threw some appropriate cold water on this. Like, is this what the Mets are going to do is go trade talent for a, you know, 30, once he's 30 now, I think Arenado. He's entering, he's entering his age 30 season. Right. But what I said was, hey, man, let's get nuts. Everybody's comparing the new look Mets to the Dodgers from eight years ago when they were bought out of bankruptcy and uh, Cohen actually tried to get in on that. And what did they do? Uh, they extended a lefty hitting outfielder and Andre Ethier, and they went and made one of the most, I don't know, lunatic trades in baseball history, which um, Dodger fans uh, affectionately refer to today as the Nick Punto trade. Although <laughs> it was really more about Carl Crawford and Adrian Gonzalez and Josh Beckett and taking on 
$250 million worth of salary, uh, giving the Red Sox six players who amounted to very little at all. Um, bonus points for you, Matt, if you can name even two of those six. I am unhealthy, so I can name, I think, five of them. Um, uh, there's one that I know is, it's on the tip of my tongue. So I'm going to give you James Loney. Yeah. Uh, Ivan DeJesus Jr. was in that trade. Jerry Sands. That's who I was thinking of, Jerry Sands. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think I want to say Chris Withrow was in that trade. Ghosts of Baseball America 29. Um, And anyway, if the Mets were to do that, instead of just going for Arenado, why don't they go nuts? Why not just trade for Story and Arenado? I I know that's unreasonable, but so is the Dodger-Red Sox trade, right? You you throw in a mid-Rosario, you eat eat the endowment's contract. Why not? Um, you know, Sandy Olson did say on an interview the other day, like we would be, you know, we are interested, you know, like, you know, one way we might try and use like our, you know, financial might for lack of a better word is taking on money and giving up less talent, which I think would apply in certain situations. Probably not this one. Cause the, 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 the Rockies are not going to tr- give, give those guys away just for salary relief. They're going to need talent back. So that's where I think this, this match kind of falls apart, but I guess, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, I think that makes sense. All right. Item number three. Our friend Craig Edwards wrote over at Fangraphs uh, a story titled Two Easy Ways to Make Baseball a Better Game. And, and I, before we describe what those are, I want to give Craig a little bit of credit here because the first sentence in his piece reads like this. Baseball is great, but it can be better. And I love that. I love that you can think about ways to improve the game without trashing it, saying, hey, I love baseball, but it's not perfect because it's not. So here are ways to make it better. And like I think most of us, he's kind of pointing to how do we get strikeouts down? How do we get more balls in play? So his first thing here is to shrink the strike zone. And he's got a whole lot of stats that back this up. And I, I appreciate uh, the work he put into this, but I, this is not specific to Craig, I guess. Every time this topic has come up for me over like the last 10 years, I sort my eyes sort of glaze over. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't think this is this is fine. I don't think this is like on my top five of things to do, but I feel like you actually think this is super important. I don't think it's, I just think it's, I thought the, the case he laid out is very interesting. Um, to me, it's some, some of the, like the, the trickiest part is sort of teaching, you know, the, the hardest part of this, I think would be teaching umpires how to enforce a new strike zone. Um, right. Maybe this is something in a world where if we ever do have an automatic strike zone where this could be possible, I think it'd be really hard to implement to sort of, you know, teach umps to sort of enforce a much smaller zone. But the compelling part of it for me was he's pointed out and something I did not realize is that basically there's this, his, his, his argument is basically like, there's this kind of belief that walks and strikeouts have been on the rise for years. And that's part of the problem of what's slowing the game down. But in reality, walks have basically stayed flat. Um, they basically stayed between like seven and a half and nine percent. The walk rate has basically stayed between seven and a half and nine percent, going back to like 1968, the year of the pitcher. Um, it's strikeouts that have skyrocketed, especially in the last, um, you know, 15 years. So he said that, and if you look, he basically points out that like a lot of that is just the way the strike zone's called because like when the when the, the pitches are at the heart of the plate, better swing, you know. So basically, he said like if you force the idea is basically if you force, if you make a small strike zone, it will force pitchers to throw the ball over the heart of the plate more. And batters inst- instinctively are looking for good pitches to hit, and they're going to take fewer pitches and swing more and put the ball in play more because there's also evidence that shows when the pitch is, you know, in the sweet spot, or I think he, he described it as the um, the heart of, he just called it the heart of the plate, you know, hitters make contact, you know, they swing um, 70, 72% of the time, you know, so it's, I thought it was an interesting argument. Um, the second part of the argument, which is dead in the ball, I found a little less compelling because that just feels like 
all sorts of unintended consequences where at least I felt like shrink the strike zone felt like one of those things of like, okay, I could see, you know, especially in a world, a world with an automatic strike zone, which seems like it's pop, you know, I say this with no inside info, just feels like it's a good chance it's going to happen because we've been experimenting with it for years and you wouldn't really experiment it with it unless you kind of were leaning towards going that way. Um, in a world where you can experiment with a smaller zone in a given year, I'd, I'd be curious to see the, the, uh, the impact. Yeah, I, I sort of like the premise behind deadening the ball a little bit because the idea is that, you know, if only like massive Joey Gallo types can really power it out of the ballpark, then everybody else will just try for more contact, which I guess, but I think it's hard to get the sweet spot. I think, you know, it's pretty clear the ball unintentionally changed over the last couple of years. And so now if they try to do it on purpose, I think that's going to be really difficult to get right. And it kind of goes back to what I've been saying all along is that that's sort of it puts the onus on the hitters to change their behavior more than the fact that the pitchers are just like incredibly, absolutely dominant. If there's a change I can make, and I know this is like a minor change that would not be on the top five pitch clock would be the first thing I would make, but I think we should do away with this idea that you get unlimited options, minor league options in option years. It shouldn't be as much as you want over three years. It should be like three times per year or whatever. Cause then you would stop the constant churn in the back of the bullpen. You might have fewer relievers coming in, and you would also like as a secondary effect, make these like, you know, middle of the road veterans more valuable because if you wanted to, uh, you know, lose their spot, you have to DFA them. Whereas for a younger guy, you can kind of option them up back and forth a million times. Anyway, there's a lot of things that I think we could do to improve the game. And I have to hope some of these things are probably coming. So kudos to Craig Edwards for um, being inventive. And I, I just love the conversation that kind of stuff generates. We are going to move on to our random free agents you should know more about. I saw who Matt picked, and I'm pretty sure Matt has talked about his pick. I don't want to say Luis Perdomo levels, by the way. Luis Perdomo signed with the Brewers. Big news here in Matt Myers' world. My guy is uh, Robbie Grossman. Robbie Grossman is 31 years old. He had a 130 OPS plus last year, a 106 over the last five years, and not much of a platoon split, you know, because he is uh, a switch hitter. He is not like a star. He's not a guy you want to play every day, but he is a perfectly useful guy. He has increased his hard hit rate for five years in a row. He has had a strikeout rate under 20% for four years in a row. And his walk rate has been above 10% for the last five years. He is hard to shift, you know, 28% uh, as a left-handed batter the last two years is not that much. And he has surprisingly improved as an outfielder. He was really just dreadful. 2016, a minus 13 outs above average, a minus 20 defensive run save. And since plus five, outs above average he's not a star probably not a starter but you're going to get him for like one year i've always liked robbie grossman give me the robbie grossman i feel like what robbie grossman's going to end up on an al west al west team because robbie grossman just feels like an al west player to me i don't know there's just certain players that i just associate with divisions and even though he's played in other divisions he has played on not two really though what not really. I mean, he came up with the Astros and spent two years with the A's. I guess he's been with the Twins in the middle for a minute. But yeah, for some reason, I just, you know, there's certain players that like, you know, just feel like they, they belong to a division, you know, like uh, Bruce Chen and at least <laughs> exactly Bruce Chen <laughs> and at least literally. And Robbie Grossman just feels like an, an AOS player. Like I'll be shocked if he doesn't end up on the, the Angels at some point in his career. He just feels like an angel. Um, and yes, uh, my guy, um, who Mike alluded to, I guess I have spoken to on this podcast many times before, is um, is Justin Wilson. And I bring this up because I went into this being like, you know what, there's all this talk about right, how there's so many right-hand relievers available on the market, but it doesn't feel like there's that many good left-hand relievers available on the market. So I was like, let me go find a good left-hand reliever on the market. And then when I went and looked, there really aren't a lot. And 
the other kind of prominent names out there, you know, leave a bit to be desired. You know, we've talked about Brad Hand a bit. I'm not a huge fan. I mean, he's good, but I'm just like, to me, I'm, I'm not sure um, if the perceived value is as much as the actual value. Um, Ali Perez, who's like kind of ageless, but actually his, he's, you know, he's like 40 years old now and his, his, he, his strikeout rate was way down last year, um, which is a big kind of a red flag given, given, given his age. And even though it was abbreviated season, it was like, it, it went from like 30% down to 18%. So even a small sample size, that's a pretty big gap. Um, and so I landed on Justin Wilson, who's just kind of consistently pretty good. And the other thing about Justin Wilson is he does not have a pronounced platoon split, which is really important in the three bat in the era of the three batter um, minimum for his career, his OPS against um, left-handers have actually um, hit slightly better against him than righty 651 versus 638. Um, his hard hit rate has been below 30% in each of the last two seasons. And he was in the top 10% um, this past year. His expected ERA has been extremely consistent the last couple of years. The walk rate is on the high side, but it's been down after, you know, reaching a, a, a peak of uh, 14% in 2018. So to me, Justin Wilson, if you're looking for like a solid left-handed reliever, um, you know, at one point I thought he was going to be like a lights out reliever when he had kind of had that breakout period with the Tigers a few years ago, that hasn't really happened, but he's been pretty solid. And I think that like you, 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 you do well with him considering I don't think he's going to command a huge deal. I uh, certainly, after all these years, cannot push back on you for your Justin Wilson love. All right, let's finish up with our purpose pitch where Matt and I each select a rant. Here's my rant. I know the winter meetings were not the same this year. They were the virtual winter meetings. But one of the, I guess this depends on your, the way you perceive these things, the highlights, if you think of it as a low light, of every winter meeting is to hear the ridiculous quotes that Scott Boris comes up with. I always like to think that Scott Boris just has like a room of interns with a notepad somewhere, like almost like comedy writers on a, a late night show coming up with the craziest things they can think of. Some of the highlights from years past, I think the one that always comes to mind is when he referred to Eric Hosmer's hot talent lava, whatever that means. A couple of years ago, he said, in order to move to Playoffville, you have to pay the property tax. We could go on for like hours. And so this week we had, you know, the the Zoom version of this. And I, I got to say, I was a little disappointed. It, it wasn't quite up to par. I think the one that stood out the most uh, referring to Jackie Bradley Jr., JBJ is the PBJ of the major leagues. He's sweet, smooth, and spreads it all over. Okay, gross. That one was kind of weird. Um, and then he also said he's pleased to see that the Mets' new ownership has big apples, also kind of gross. So I don't know. I feel like we're kind of um, you know going for the, for the dirty joke quotient here. Just It wasn't quite uh, what I've come to expect from, a, from an agent of that stature. Um, that's, I, I missed the... Um... I'd miss the Jackie Bradley Jr. comment, so I'm glad you brought that one to my to my attention. Uh, I'm going to close with my purpose pitch. My closing rant is something that's bothered me for a long time, and thankfully, um, my former colleague and friend Joe Bosnanski did the work for me and uh, proved that I was right all along. In writing his piece about the uh, the best hundred players, the best hundred players not in the Hall of Fame. He had an essay about Johan Santana, and in it, he made the point that if Johan Santana had won that third Cy Young Award, which we talked about recently on this podcast, um, I think it was—I can't remember if it was 2005 or 2006—he um, would be probably be in the Hall of Fame because three Cy Youngs kind of is like the golden ticket. Of course, he finished third that one year when he almost certainly should have won it with Bartolo Colon winning. Yeah, 05. 05. 05. and. 
his former teammate, Tory Hunter, was quoted, uh, Santana's former teammate, Tory Hunter, was quoted as saying, the only reason Santana didn't win is because he played in a small market and that Cologne, by virtue of being in, you know, the greater Los Angeles area, benefited from that and um, won the Cy Young for that reason. Now, of course, Joe went and did the work. I've always said there's no clear bias in awards voting when it comes to market. And Joe went and actually did the work. He actually went and broke down. He did a poll to determine which were big markets versus small markets versus big, big, big markets. And like there's, you know, in Cy Young Awards, big market and mid market teams have the exact same number of, of Cy Young winners, 22, with small market at 18. Um, MVPs, it's 27 for big markets. 20 for mid markets and 15 for small markets. But then again, you go back and look at some of the recent votes, like Justin Morneau beat out Derek Jeter in 2006 when it was pretty clear that this, the advanced statistical case was in Derek Jeter's favor. Um, so go read Joe's piece. He makes it goes, goes through the list, makes it very clear that there's, there's no evidence of any big market bias in uh, BBWA awards voting. You know, I don't, you know, BBWA has it set up so that only two reporters per market get to vote. And part of the reason they do that is to avoid having, having a bias towards big markets. Now, I don't really like that method just because I think that like the more people that vote makes it more interesting. You get more ballots, you get more discussion. I think that's good for the game. I also think that when you have only 30 voters, it makes it that much more likely that one like weird outlier ballot can, can screw things up and, and lead to the wrong winner. That said, if one of the goals of this system is to prevent a big market bias, it is clearly it is clearly working, and I do never want to hear again about how there is a big market bias in baseball awards voting. Yes, I um, I saw that as well, and I'm glad that Joe actually went and did the the work for that. This also reminds me, and I know it's a little different because I'm about to talk about fan voting and not writer voting, of when the big market Kansas City Royals fans stuffed the ballot box got like six all-star starters that one year, which was amazing. Um, no, I agree with you on that. And I think it's true because if you look over the last couple of years, um, you know, there's been what, two Tampa Bay Cy Young Award winners in the last couple of years, right? And when's the last time a Yankee won a Cy Young Award? Yeah, it's, it's, Jeter, never won a, Jeter never won an MVP, which is sort of shocking. Um, Rivera never won a Cy Young. No Met has ever won MVP. Um, so I think- that, Is that a Mets thing or is that a big market thing? Uh, there's been some, there've been years where they've, you know, like, you know they're they've had legitimate candidates and have not won so i think it's um i think it's um i will accept this i will accept this rent uh, as a high quality rent that's our show for this week this is the mob.com ballpark dimensions podcast our enormous thanks to larry lester uh, who was really a, a great joy to chat with uh thanks for listening yeah.